Let's have a word of prayer. We can get started in here to on this lesson here. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the wonderful blessings we've received already. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be given to us as we get back into your word. We're going to be looking at the judgment and a study entitled uh, Facing Your Record. And we pray for the Spirit to guide us into all truth. Help us to have a right understanding. This does have a huge part to play in prophecy and in time events. And so we want to understand it and, and understand it well enough that we can share it with others as well. Uh, we thank you so much for Jesus and for hearing this prayer. We ask it humbly in His name. Amen. Okay, this is uh, a study that gets us into essentially Daniel chapter 8. And the next two studies here, this one and the next one, we're going to be dealing with that. We're going to be talking about the judgment. And uh, and so, uh, first, before we can talk about a judgment, we need to understand that there is one. And that's what this study essentially is about. God showed Daniel the future of what was going to happen on the earth. And uh, he told him about the rise of Babylon and how... Uh, you know, through uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember, he was interpreting it and God gave him the answers to the dream and he said, you know, you're going to have those four major kingdoms, you know, before uh, the world will come to an end and and uh, Jesus will return and God will set up his own everlasting kingdom. Um, and so we saw that in the, the symbolic beasts and, and how he used the ten horns to depict the splintering of the you know, the, the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, into those European fragments. We still got it on the board here, Daniel 7, those uh, ten tribes and, and such. And then, then Daniel was shown an incredible scene. After he was shown all these things, as, as if this wasn't incredible enough, he was shown an even more incredible scene, I believe, in heaven, which involved everyone who has ever been created. And it is this scenario that we're going to look at here in the title of this lesson, Facing Your Record. Question number one, what did Daniel see happening in the heavenly sanctuary where God's throne is sometime after the division of Rome into the European nations? That's sometime after this. You know, He didn't have the timelines then or whatever. In fact, pretty much he fainted away and had to be given some of the input later on. And so, what, what was it that he saw happening? Well, if we look at Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, let's just read it real quick here, just to refresh our memories. It says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame. Isn't that interesting? Fiery flame. That's what his throne was like. And his, his wheels as burning fire. Wheels. That's pretty interesting. Almost that sounds like a chariot, doesn't it? Uh, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And so sometime after, you know, in, in, in vision here, Daniel showed all these things. He's shown us Daniel 7, the little horn. We paid a lot of attention to that, you know, because that's what drew his attention. And then he's shown this, Daniel 7, 9, verses 9 and 10. 
What was it that Daniel saw happening in heaven? Got an answer? The judgment. Well, the very last sentence tells us, doesn't it? The judgment was said and the books were opened. Daniel saw that the judgment would begin sometime after the fall and division of pagan Rome into papal Rome. So that would be sometime after the 1200s. This is important to get the time event because next time we stay together we'll get more in depth into it. But it has to be the judgment didn't start, you know, uh, back in Abraham's day. It didn't start. There is a time. And that time was sometime after all this. So it was sometime after the 1260 years that the judgment begins. After 1798 is when we ran the, you know, 1278 in, you know, kind of like the way we deal with it down here, we can look at it as a courtroom, the courtroom of God in heaven. And the angels are the, you know, the, the uh, what do they have, a stenographer in court that takes all the notes. And so the angels are there to do that. And, and uh, um, what I like to tell people is when we think of the judgment, a lot of times we think of it in a negative way. But really, the more you you study this out and you come to understand God's character, you realize that the purpose really of the judgment is to declare God's people not guilty, if possible. Because if you understand God's character, and John says God is love, you understand God's trying to find us not guilty. Whereas the world and the way Satan pictures God's character is, you would think God's trying to find us guilty. Like he's looking for some reason to condemn us. And that's not the case. What God's trying to do is find, he's trying to find evidence where he can declare us not guilty. He wants us to be not guilty, see? And so having a right understanding of God's character, which we talked about the law of God earlier today, uh, uh, will give us a right understanding on how we look at the judgment, how we approach the judgment. Question two, what court summons do we all have pending? So Daniel was shown that there was a judgment, and we've got the timeline. It was sometime after 1798, the time of the end. What court summons do we all have pending? Anybody have an answer there? Stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul said there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in Romans 14.10, he says, For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know the Greek word for judgment seat. Do you know what, they, what it is? The Greek word is bima. Have you ever heard of bima seat? I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah. It was a raised platform from which a, a formal uh, Roman trial was conducted. It was raised up above people. So you knew that person was above you. They have the authority to judge you. See? And so we must all, Paul says, appear before the Bema seat, before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for our life. Question three. 
there are three parts to a court case. You have first the investigation. That's what court's about. That's where evidence is given, witnesses are listened to, all the evidence, the investigation of charges, you know, accusations and everything happens in investigation. Then you have the sentencing part. If a person is found guilty or not guilty. And then you have the execution of the sentence. Where do we get this three parts to a court case? Did man just come up with that on his own? No, actually he didn't. Those principles are found in God's Word. That's how it's set up. God's Word sets it up in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and 9. We get to talking about, especially in 8, talking about the judgment. God has principles on how this, and we see in the judgment, how it unfolds. We're in the investigative part. Okay? That's why sometimes you'll hear it referred to by Adventists as the investigative judgment. Basically, they're just saying, we're in the investigative part of the judgment. We're not in the sentencing part yet. See? When will the investigative part of the judgment be done? Before or after Jesus comes? See, now there are people, there are denominations that believe, oh yeah, there's a judgment. You can't get beyond that there's a judgment. But they are confused as to, to when it happens. They think, well, when the world ends, we all come up before God. And well, What's the Bible really say? You guys have an answer? When will the investigative part of the judgment be done? You say before? Yeah, <coughs> yeah it's pretty simple, really, because when you read Revelation twenty two twelve, 12, it talks about Jesus coming back, and what's He coming with? Rewards. He's coming with the rewards. Right? So if, if he he's, hasn't made up his mind, why would he have rewards? Yeah, he, couldn't, he wouldn't know who was going to receive him or not. Right? Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Well, He's had to have understood what the works were. Now, you could make an argument that, well, God knows everything in less than a split second or whatever anyway. But the judgment isn't just for God. It's just like prayer. Prayer really isn't for God to tell God what you need. He already knows what you need. But it's for us, isn't it? The judgment is for the universe because we're on trial for the government of God. That's what it comes down to. God is on trial. Have you ever heard that expression? So, when you read those scriptures, you know, well, the investigation had to have already been taken place and Christ knows exactly who's going to receive the rewards. So Jesus comes with the rewards to pronounce the sentence. Therefore, the investigative part of the judgment, it had to have already been done. Like you said, it's before he comes back. And so, you know, when you read there in Matthew 16, 25, and you read the context of Matthew 16, like if you go to 16, 25, Christ had been speaking about Christians losing their lives for his sake. And if the reward for the sacrifice then of losing their life for his sake were to be received at death, which is what they teach today and have taught for, you know, um, decades, even hundreds of years really, um, it's strange that Christ here specifically says that this reward is not given until he returns in glory at the end of the age. 
<laughs> wouldn't, you know, just like some other things we've discovered, it really doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So, uh, Jesus is going to come with the rewards to pronounce sentence. Question four, must we appear in person at this judgment? Or is there a record of our lives that will be reviewed? Must we re- appear in person at this judgment? What, what answers did you get? No. No. <laughs> no, we're not going to appear in person at the judgment, but there is a record of our life that is presented as evidence. You know, sometimes even today, you hire an attorney who represents you. You don't necessarily have to be at the trial. Your attorney is representing you. And that's kind of the way it is. Here, we're not, you know, our rep. Our, our attorney, our advocate, will be representing us. In essence, it's either going to be Jesus or we represent ourselves through the record. Um, so we're not going to appear in person at the judgment, but there is a record. And, and these are the books containing the record of everyone's life. You know? And what's really nice is that no sentence is passed upon um, any wicked person because we're talking about this, uh, and we'll get this, I guess we'll answer this question in a few minutes. Um, But no, God is not going to pass a sentence upon anybody. He's not going to be arbitrary. He's not going to be biased. He's not going to be unfair. God is a just God. And that's why when you read in certain places, it says every knee will bow. They'll bow to and admit God is a just God and that the trial was fair. And so we can trust it. This gets the point is we can trust God's judgment. You know, if it was left up to us, it would be biased. It would be unfair. It just would, you know, it work out like it does on earth now. You know, crooked judges, crooked, you know, it just would be terrible. With whom does this investigative judgment begin? At the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17 For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And as, Paul, as Peter says here, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Right. Now it's very interesting there in 1 Peter 4.17. The first sentence there, that verse can be translated because it, because it is the appropriate time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now it's interesting. Um, I'd like a drink of water. I thought I brought my water in here, but I guess I didn't. Let me serve you. Sorry for the interruption here. Um, it is interesting <clears throat> when you read um, in the vision of Ezekiel chapter 9, for example. Um, it says in verses 5 and 6, it says, And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city. Thank you very much. It says, uh, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, 
and begin at my sanctuary than they began at the ancient men which were before the house. From Ezekiel chapter 9, we see here that the messengers of judgment began at the sanctuary, executing judgment on those who made the highest profession. You could almost say, well, yeah, in the house of God, he probably starts with the ministers and elders of God first. Yeah, probably it does. Probably, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the judgment begins with with all um, who've ever professed to believe in and followed God. So judgment begins with the professed followers of God. The Bible declares that the judgment, and, and this is something I alluded to earlier, the Bible says the judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work and it takes place at a later period. So it starts in the house of God. In other words, it starts with those who have professed to be followers of God. Question six. Who is the prosecuting attorney who accuses God's people? Satan. Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the, what? Accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And then, of course, the other reference was there in Job. What's interesting here is, first of all, the Greek word translated as accuser is kategoros. Uh, it's kategoros. And it means against one in the assembly, that is, a complainant at law. Isn't that interesting? So, in our court system, he would then be called the prosecuting attorney. He's the accuser, the complainant in law. So, even in a civil case, if you're called to court because of a civil case, somebody is making a complaint against you. Isn't that correct? And that's what Satan is. He's the prosecuting attorney. He's the accuser. He's the complainant. And then there you read the you know Job chapter 1, you know, and the Lord says to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And, and then Satan says, Well, psh, the only reason you're blessing him is because you give him everything he wants. Essentially, isn't that what he's saying? He accused Job before God and creation of serving the Lord from selfish motives, for material gain that God permitted to even accrue. I mean, it was, you know, Job was considered probably one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time. You know, and so God was rewarding him for his worship. That's what Satan's accusation was. And so, you know, rabbinical writings frequently represent Satan as the great accuser. That's what they, they considered him as. The accuser of the brethren. Question number seven. Who is the defense attorney? who serves as our advocate, or can serve as our advocate. We have to make a choice, don't we? 
First John 2 verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's interesting too, the Greek word translated as advocate is parakletos. Parakletos, and it means an inter- intercessor, a consoler, an advocate, a comforter. You heard that expression before? Comforter? What's that been used as before? They're describing who? The Holy Spirit. That's right. And Matthew Henry, he's a, a you know, wrote, well, I think he lived in the 1700s, he wrote commentaries of the Bible. He says this about the word parakletos. He says, the original name is sometimes given to the Holy Ghost, and then it is rendered the Comforter. He acts within us. He puts pleas and arguments into our hearts and our mouths, and so is our advocate by teaching us to intercede for ourselves. But here, and we're reading here from 1 John 2.1, he says, but here is an advocate without us. In heaven with the Father. The proper office and business of an advocate is with the judge, and with him he pleads the client's case. Okay? Wait, when you use the word without, does that mean outside of us? Outside of us. It's somebody, it's not the Holy Spirit in us. It's not the Holy Spirit in us working to convict us and to do those things. Here we have an advocate who's outside of us. He's talking about the word that was used. Who's, who's doing a work of going to God and saying, I'm their advocate. Father, my hands, my hands. Essentially. See? So who is the defense attorney? Or, or can be our defense attorney? Jesus. It'd be Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's our agent, our advocate. He answers all the accusations. He puts in our plea because the judge will say, do you plead not guilty or guilty? He puts in our plea for us. Um, he pursues it with effect. He's, he's on the case. You know, He's going to appear you know, for us. Like Deb said, we're not there. He's representing us if we choose Him to be our advocate. Who's the judge? The final authority in this courtroom. Jesus. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Romans 2.16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. John 5.22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Can't get past that one, can you? Well, who is it that John saw then? This Ancient of Days coming... It's actually both of them there. But the Bible clearly teaches that Christ is to be the final judge and he's the one who's fitted for the task, isn't he? In our court system, you know, a trial by jury, a lot of of civilizations didn't have that. But in our country, they put that in the Constitution. That when we have a trial, we can ask for a trial by jury of our what? Peers. Our peers. What does peers mean? Those like us. People who have maybe had some similar experiences and things. Why would that be necessary? 
to be fair. They can maybe put themselves in our position and understand maybe why we did what we did. See? So Jesus, he is our advocate, but here's a judge. He's a judge who knows what it's like to be a human being, knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in all points like as we are, and so he's best fitted not only to be our advocate, but also to judge. So we can't, and it works the other way too. We can't put one over on the judge. We can't say to the judge, well, you just don't understand. You don't know what it's like to be a human being. Au contraire. <laughs> he knows exactly what it's like to be a human. So, you know. His understanding and his insight, you can't get past it. Uh, let me share this with you. Um, in his role as judge of all, which we read there, um, God the Father is united with Christ and is seen by John the Revelator upon a great white throne at the end of the thousand years. You read that in Revelation 20. So they're both there, but the Father has given to the Son the final judgment. Uh, Review and Herald article, November 22nd, 1898. I just want to share this with you. God designed that the prince of sufferers in humanity should be judge of the whole world. He who came from the heavenly courts to save man from eternal death, he whom men despised, rejected, and upon whom they heaped all the contempt of which human beings, inspired by Satan, are capable, he who submitted to be arraigned before an earthly tribunal and who suffered the ignominious death of the cross, he alone is to pronounce the sentence of reward or of punishment. See, an argument, like I said, an argument could be said about the Father, you don't understand. But no argument like that can come up before Christ. Because he intimately knows what it's like to be a human being, to be tempted to go through all this. So you can actually trust his judgment. Not that you can't trust the Father's judgment. But you can really trust Christ's judgment, can't you? Because not only uh, do you have an advocate who knows what it's like to be human, but you have a judge that knows what it's like to be human. So, it's really interesting though. Not only is Jesus our advocate, but he's our judge. The Father's the rightful judge, but he gives. But he gives it, he's saying, yeah. So, it's almost like, it's almost like you could look look at it that way and say, well, I'm giving it to the Son. The Father has the he final knows. say. His final say is, yeah, whatever the Son says. Right. <laughs> That's the final say. <laughs> right. So, you know. He gives him the power. He says, well, mm-hmm. I gain the power. So, and here's a point I, I thought about too when I was thinking about this. We need to remember that whether or not Jesus is our advocate, he will be our judge. And so we got to remember that too and think about that very seriously before we make a, a final choice of who's going to represent us. Because in the judgment, either Christ is going to represent us or our record is going to represent us. That's it. Number nine, what is the evidence that is presented during this investigative phase of the judgment? Remember what we read there in Daniel 7, 9 and 10? The very end it says, 
The judgment was set in what? The books. The books were opened. So what's this this evidence? Books containing the records of our life. There's going to be books. There's a, that's that's the record that's entered in. Number 10, how many books of record are referred to in the Bible? And this is where we have the one correction there. For those of you who have the lesson, and uh, this was pointed out to me, um, I think we had, what was it? John. One of the references, the very last reference was John 11, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I scratched it out. That That's a misprint. It shouldn't even be on there. It shouldn't be on that question at all. So if you might have read that and go, what does this have to do with the question? You, you've got good sense. Because it really, you know, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be there. So, but how many books of record are referred to in the Bible? There are four different books mentioned in Scripture. Now, I run into some who say there are three, but I read these Scriptures and it sure sounds like four to me. Bottom line is, if you have Jesus as your advocate, you don't have to worry about how many books are used, right? It could be ten. It wouldn't matter. But the books of record referred to in the Bible, there are four. Malachi 3.16 says a book of remembrance. Jeremiah 2 verse 22, it says, And thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. Psalms 139 talks about in thy book all my members were written. Uh, Revelation twenty twelve. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. So it sounds like there are four different records. Right? Well, it kind of... It, it's... You could ask God that. Why would you even include that in the Bible? I am. That's what I meant. Not. No, not the Bible. I just meant why would you include it in the lesson? Oh. Not the Bible. <laughs> it, shows, it shows that there's more than just your actions. There's your thoughts, your intents, your, mm-hmm. you know. Well, like first, the book of remembrance of good deeds. There's a book. There's a book of remembrance of good deeds. Let's just go through them. Okay. And it might just help you. Okay. The book of remembrance of good deeds. The book of remembrance records the good deeds of them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name. Malachi 3.16. Their words of faith, their acts of love, which is like what Jerome's saying. You you get a better overall picture of the person from all these different records. That so sounds like animal, the book of prose and the book of comments. Huh? And I want to say this. The, the books, as plural, are going over to the, the wicked, the lost, so they can understand. Oh, that too, yeah. If you're so there's not going to be... One book. The book there won't be any questions of, well, you know... <laughs> Who exactly are you speaking of here? Because there's been 14 billion people named Jerome. Well, I have a record here of Jerome, you know, Ford lived at such and such, you know, in. That's not me. You know. (laughs) But the the book of remembrance, it has the, the, the words of faith, the acts of love, um, Nehemiah refers to this when he says, Remember me, O my God, and wipe not out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God. All the good deeds you, you've done are written there. Uh, in this book of God's remembrance, um, every temptation resisted. See, it's very specific. 
Um, every evil overcome, every word of pity, of pity expressed is recorded in this book. And every act of sacrifice, every suffering and sorrow that you've endured for Christ is written down there. So there will be no mistake. I mean, think about this judgment. We're talking about billions of people being judged. You've got to have specifics. Somebody can't stand up and say, that wasn't me, you got me mixed up with so-and-so. No, we've got records of every single thing. It's you. <laughs> me. Oh, yeah, I did that, but Jerome was with me. Yeah, well, that. Well, a lot of that. That's right. <laughs> the book of iniquity. That, that includes the sins of all men. Um, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Every idle word that we speak, we're going to have to give an account of that. Matthew 12, 36, 37. Jesus said, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Also in that book is the secret purposes and motives. And like Jerome had mentioned to you earlier, it talks about our thoughts. There's a record kept of even our thoughts. Then you have the the book of individual description. You know, um, the very hairs of our head are numbered. Um, this man was born. Psalms talks about a man that was born in such and such a place. You know, when they talked about Peter, the angel was saying, is he the one that lives over in such and such? Okay, it's the one that lives over there. You know, there's a record of all these things. Then you have, of course, the book of life. So every man's work passes in review before God, and it's registered either for faithfulness or it's registered for unfaithfulness in all these records. And opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered every wrong word, every selfish act, every you know duty that you should have fulfilled but you didn't fulfill, and and you think you've got secret sins? No. It may be secret on this earth with other people, but it's not to heaven. Your exactly. Neglected warnings or reproofs are even recorded. Um, wasted moments. I mean, it's very detailed. Even good donations you did on the wrong reasons. <laughs> it's everything. You know? Your personal gain. The recording angel, it's very interesting. Boy, he's got an important job, doesn't he? recording angel he chronicles all of it pretty amazing question number 11 what is the name of the book that records the names of those who have accepted Jesus as their savior and advocate yeah the book of life right that's the name of it revelation 21 27 and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life contains the names. Now this is, this is an important thing for us to, to kind of get our mind around. The name of book, the name of life, is a book that records and contains the names of all who have ever entered the service of God. Any who have ever said and professed to accept Jesus or God as God. Your name is in there. Jesus said in Luke 10 verse 20, He said, Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's what He told the disciples. 
Um, Paul speaks of his faithful fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, Philippians 4 and verse 3. Uh, Daniel, looking down to the, if you go to Daniel 12, looking down to that time of trouble such as never was, he declares that uh, God's people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And so it's everyone who ever professed to go into service for God, in essence, you call it service for God, except in God. Question 12. During the judgment, what will happen to the record of the sins of God's people who were converted and who repented of their sins? They blotted out or forgiven. That's what it says, isn't it? Acts 3.19. Peter talking. He says, Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When? When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claim the blood of Christ as their atoning, their sacrifice. That's a siren, isn't it? They've had pardon entered against their names in the book of heaven. Boy, he's close. We've got a police officer or something there, don't we? Not it's going out, so they're not after us. Right? So, as they've become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God, we talked about today, earlier, the law of God, their sins are going to be blotted out. They, they will be accounted worthy of eternal life. The Lord declares in Isaiah 43, 25, He says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. I don't know about you. I'm pretty sure I could safely say this. You know, when I committed a sin, I felt so bad, I don't want anybody to know I've done it. Right. And it's a real insurance to know that God's not going to remember it. That He'll blot it out and it'll be removed and you'll never have to face it ever. Again. Revelation 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so their sins will be removed or blotted out from the books. And so the work of investigative judgment and the blotting out of sins is to be accomplished before, as we learned, before the second coming of Jesus, right? And since the dead are to be judged out of things written in the books, it's impossible that the, the sins of men should be blotted out until after the judgment at which their cases are to be investigated. That's kind of a common sense thing, isn't it? When the investigative judgment closes, Christ will come. And His reward will be with Him to give to every man, as the Bible says, as His work shall be. Question 13. What will happen to those who were once saved and registered in this book of life, but then continue to cherish sin? I hope you're beginning to understand a little bit about how important the Ten Commandments are and that they haven't been done away with. You see, because the judgment has to do with sin, and sin is a transgression of the law. And to be in the Lamb's book of life, it's not just confess Jesus, in fact, confess Jesus means to commit your life to Him. <laughs> Not just believe Jesus. Believe on Jesus and thou shalt be saved. That means to make a commitment to Him. Your life becomes His. 
essentially. So the answer to 13 is erased, pretty much. I wouldn't think they'll die. Yeah, what will happen to those who were once saved but didn't continue? Yeah. When any have sins remaining on the book of record that are unrepented, therefore if they're unrepented, they're unforgiven, then their names will be blotted out of the book of life and the record of their good deeds will be erased from the book of God's remembrance. They will perish in the lake of fire when the sentence is executed. So see how important it is to have a right understanding concerning the law of God. It could cost you your eternal life. Question 14. Will all who profess that Jesus is their Savior and who claim to be saved be saved? No, not if they love and righteousness. That's right. It kind of goes along with the last question, doesn't it? That's what Jesus was talking about there in Matthew 7, wasn't it? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who's going to enter there? He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So no, as the books of record are open in the judgment, the lives of all who have believed on Jesus, they come in review. It begins at the house of God. It comes in review before God, beginning with those who first lived upon the earth. Adam, coming on down. And our advocate presents every case of every successive generation and closes with the living. That's the judgment closes with those who are alive. And every name is mentioned. Every case is closely investigated. Names are accepted. Names are rejected. And it's not done haphazardly. Jesus fights for our salvation because He wants our name to remain in the book of life. So it's not like you're brought on trial and you don't have any money and you got to use a lawyer that's you know, supplied to you who really doesn't care about your case. It's just added to his workload. Jesus died for each one of us and he fights for each one of us as if we were the only person that was going to be saved. We can praise God for that. To ultimately, if we're found not, if we're found guilty, it's because we fought him and said, Get away. Don't want your help. Don't want your help. Question 15. Will we be judged by our religious profession or by some other means? In other words, like Matthew 7. They professed to know him, said, we've done all these things in thy name, we've cast out demons, we've raised the dead, we you know, visited in prison, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Well, are we going to be judged based on our profession? Yeah, I profess to be a Christian. Remember earlier today, there are people who break the commandments professing to be Christians. They profess to to uphold the Bible. They believe that the Bible, they say anyway, that the Bible is God's written word. But yet, they reject a lot of things that are written in it. So, is... Are we judged just by our profession or is there some other means? What's your answer? By the law of God. By the law of God. We're judged by the law of God. And that's what Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, that's why he said this. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The bottom line. This is what he's saying. Here's the bottom line to it all. Fear God 
and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then he says, For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So he's saying, this is the bottom line, friends. If we want to sum it all up, this is it. Our life decisions are going to be compared to the Ten Commandments, the law of God. It's the standard by which the characters and the lives of men will be tested in the judgment. That's what we're compared against. And so we're given a we're given the chance right now in this probationary time to compare our lives to that commandment law right now and make the changes through the power of Christ that need to be made. So we're going to face that law either right now when something can be done about it or we're going to face it then when it will condemn us. So we've got a choice. You want to face it now because you will face it later. Question 16. Though we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by works, but what, by what will we be judged? Well, we said we'll be judged by the law. Well, what's the law essentially tell us about? When we say it points out our flaws, it's something tangible though, isn't it? It's not just a belief system, is it? What are we going to be judged by? Matthew 16, 27. It says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His beliefs. No, that's not what it says, is it? It says, according to His works. (gasps) What? Yeah. The Bible declares that our works reveal our faith. This is something else we talked about earlier today, isn't it? All will be judged by their works. Not saved by them, but we will be judged by them. And why is that? Because our works show the true intents of our heart, doesn't it? That's why Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So if we keep his commandments and our motivation is that love for Christ, it will be seen in our works. That's why we can be judged by them. Let me share this with you. It's from the Great Controversy. Pages 484, begin with there. It says, Sins that have not been repented of and forsaken will not be pardoned and blotted out of the books of record, but will stand to witness against the sinner in the day of God. God has an exact record of every unjust account and every unfair dealing. He is not deceived by appearances of piety. He makes no mistakes in his estimation of character. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claim the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have had pardon entered against their names in the books of heaven as they have become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God their sins will be blotted out and they themselves will be accounted worthy of eternal life. So it comes down to like all things, doesn't it? Choice. 
Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house, what Joshua say? We shall serve the Lord. Question 17. How do our works reveal our faith? Again, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. He said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. So in other words, the tree can profess whatever it wants, but when it starts producing fruit, that's when you can judge it. Remember Jesus went to the fig tree and it looked beautiful, didn't it? And he looked all over the place for figs and it didn't have any. And then he cursed the tree and it withered up. And that was a symbol of who? Israel. Israel at that time, oh, they looked very pious on the outside, but he said inside her, he said, you're whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Look pretty on the outside, but there's nothing inside but death. And so that's what works reveal. They, the, the works reveal our fruit. And it tells what kind of tree we are. See? If we're a, from the tree of life or not. And so he says, so every good, uh, good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. So how do our works reveal our faith? It shows our true loyalty to who we love. Exactly. That's a good answer. It shows those who are born of the Spirit will do the works of Jesus. They shall be known by their fruits. And a good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. It, and like you said, it shows who our loyalty is. Who we love the most. Where our love is, exactly. We can profess to love Jesus, but if we break all the commandments, are we really loving Jesus? Question 18. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, that he had never known or never represented or been the advocate of some of those who called him Lord. How can we make sure that he will be our advocate and thus win our case? And here's where we, we have another uh, change. One of the references originally there was 1 John 2.16. That's supposed to be 1 John 4, verses 15 and 16. And I apologize for that next up. I'll make sure that gets changed on the original. But how can we make sure? 1 John 4, 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Proverbs 9, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Verse 13 declares, He that overcometh his sins shall not prosper. Excuse me. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So, so what is it? We read the Gospels especially. How can we make sure that Jesus is our advocate? 
advocate, and not only that, that he wins the case in the judgment. Well, we repent and we confess our sins, don't we? We ask the Holy Spirit to come in, change our hearts, being born again. And that involves accepting Jesus as our personal Savior, Lord and Savior, and committing ourselves to Him. And when that happens, He becomes our advocate. In fact, you know, it's almost like he be, He's our advocate trying to be our advocate, let's put it that way, already. He's the one who draws us to Himself. So He pleads in our behalf. And how does He do that? Well, He... His wounded hands, his bruised body. He lifts up before the Father, doesn't he? As Paul said, what? In 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for thee. What, what he said to Paul. Matthew 11, verse 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So friends, I want to encourage you. We're going to be facing our record. We're either going to have an advocate in Jesus, or our record is going to speak for itself. I would like to have Jesus be my advocate. What about you? And I want you to know that, I don't want you to think that your defects are incurable. God will give faith and grace to overcome them. He's promised. But we must ask in faith, nothing wavering, you know, not one of these, well, wouldn't hurt kind of things. Well, that's kind of wishy-washy, isn't it? But we've got to make a commitment. We're coming to the end of time, friends. And there must be a deep and a faithful searching of our hearts. The work of preparation also is an individual work. I can't save you. We're not saved in groups. The church is to be organized for service. That's what organizations are for. The organization doesn't save you. you But God's going to examine the case of each individual with as close and searching scrutiny as if there were not another being upon the earth. I believe that with my whole heart. I mean, I do. I know that Jesus pleads for me as vigorously as he would if I was the only person there was to fight for. And he does that with every individual. The great thing about it is if Jesus is our advocate, we're going to be found not guilty. Because as we read before, he's not just the advocate, he is a judge. Yeah, but there's a if Well, do you desire to have Jesus as your advocate in the judgment? I do. Will you continue to learn from Him and walk in the light that He's revealing to you so that you may have assurance for eternal life in Him? Amen. So can you see how important it is to have these understandings of the judgment, especially in lieu of prophecy? We find out when, next time we get together, when exactly the judgment begins. Has it already begun? Our court case might be coming up really soon. You know? So, you know, it has a lot to do with the present truth message, doesn't it? 
And we're going to find out more and more, especially next time we get together. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day and for being with us here as we've studied um, in Daniel about the judgment and about facing our record. And, and we understand that uh, Jesus will be our advocate uh, if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and we, we do that now. We pray that as we claim the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins, that he will stand for us in, in the judgment and that we, we may uh, be found not guilty and have our names remain in the book of life. Please continue to be with us, not only throughout this day, but in the days ahead. And may we be a positive witness to someone around uh, us, to our family, friends, and neighbors, to the love of Jesus and that he lives in us. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.